Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the move by the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee at the urging of President Biden to change the primary schedule for 2024, with South Carolina first on the calendar on February the 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada on February the 6th, then Georgia on February the 13th, and Michigan on February the 27th. Joining us is an expert on presidential nominating primaries, David Redlosk, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware, who was previously a visiting professor at the University of Iowa. He is the co-author of Why Iowa? How Caucuses and Sequential Elections Improve the Presidential Nominating Process, and his latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Then we'll assess President Biden's suggestion that he would enter into peace talks with Putin if the Kremlin had any serious interest in ending the war in Ukraine, to which Putin responded by indicating he'd be willing to talk if the West accepted his precondition that Russia retain all the Ukrainian territory it has claimed. Moving beyond the devastation of the battlefield as winter grips the seemingly endless conflict, we will look into the man and the myth behind the tragedy Putin is inflicting on the people of Ukraine to try to understand why such a small man has had a disproportionate impact on the world stage. Joining us is Andrew Weiss, Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff, as a member of the State Department's Policy Planning staff, and as a policy assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of President Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. We will discuss his new book, Just Out, Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, David Redlosk, a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware, who was previously a visiting professor at the University of Iowa. He's the co-author of Why Iowa? How Caucuses and Sequential Elections Improve the Presidential Nominating Process. And his latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Redlosk. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee on Friday moved to adopt uh, President Biden's plan to overhaul the Democratic Party's presidential nominating process. And what they've come up with, which apparently is Biden's uh, suggestion, is that the first primary in 2024 should be in South Carolina on February the 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada on February the 6th, 
and then Georgia on February the 13th, and then Michigan on February the 27th. And, of course, this new plan has really offended Democratic officials in Iowa and in New Hampshire. But what are the chances of it being enacted? I think the chances of it being enacted are are pretty high. I suspect that the DNC is going to accept this plan from the Rules and Bylaws Committee. And and part of the reason is simply that um, the Democratic Party has been trending in the direction away from uh, Iowa's role for a couple of cycles now, and in particular, uh, in in 2020, of course, President Biden did not do well in Iowa, and the Iowa caucus process itself had some problems. So in, in some respects, this is not that much of a surprise. Well, Iowa, of course, is a very, very red state, is it not? So it's pretty clear that for the Democrats, it doesn't really represent the kind of broad coalition that the Democrats represent. Yeah, it's, it's funny because up through 2010, uh, particularly in the 2000s itself, Iowa was very much a swing state. Um, Democrats actually controlled the legislature there, the governor's, uh, uh, governor's position. And then in 2020, 2010, rather, it all shifted and Republicans began their ascension in Iowa to the point now that uh, Democrats have been all but wiped out of uh, significant offices in the, in the state. And so, you know, it didn't used to be this way. And I think when Iowa was was much more of a swing state, it made it, it still seemed to make sense to many Democratic leaders that um, it should play a prominent role. But at the same time, the Democratic Party has shifted as well, and it's far more diverse, far less white um, than it used to be. Iowa, meanwhile, remains a very uh, white state, a uh, very rural state, and now not a Democratic state. So I think that that those are all factors that come into play as the as the Democrats try to figure out what their process should be going forward. Well, it's sort of graphically displayed if you in these yeah. election maps that they do after the elections in the last two presidential elections. Mm-hmm. What you see is a, most of the United States is just red, just uh, and there are just these little spots of blue, mostly on the coast in California and in the Northeast. So that leads you to the broader question: Is how come the Democrats lost so much of rural America? Well, I mean, firstly. We have to be careful about those maps because they're they're showing land, and of course, elections aren't about land, right? There are a lot of relatively empty areas in the United States, so you know those small blue areas are represent an awful lot of people. But it is true that the Democrats, over a relatively lengthy period of time now, really lost out uh, in the Midwest of the of the U.S., where they were competitive in Iowa, they were competitive in Ohio. In the earlier part of the 20th century, Kansas was a very progressive state. I think what happened really is that um, the Republicans hit on topics that were of interest to people in rural areas. They played the card that you're being ignored by the elites, and they did it over and over for a very long period of time. While Democrats honestly didn't do very much in a lot of these small towns and a lot of these states to try to maintain their position. 
Um, but I think another thing that happened, and, and to be quite frank, in a place like Iowa, you know, the Iowa Democrats put uh, Barack Obama on the map. He won the Iowa caucuses in this very white state. It got him going in the 2008 cycle, led him to be president. But I think at the same time, um, the Democrats nominating and the country electing a black president had rebound effects in areas that are uh, very white, very not used to diversity, and honestly quite afraid of change. And the Republicans have been able to uh, 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 make hay with that, to be honest. So, I mean, assuming they go ahead with this new plan yeah. to have the first primary in South Carolina on February the 3rd and the second one in New Hampshire and Nevada on the same day, yeah. February the 6th, then Georgia on February the 13th and Michigan on February the 27th, the Republicans are going to go ahead with their schedule as is, right? Yeah. So you, you yeah. won't have any coincidence of except perhaps right. in New Hampshire, right, where both the Democrats right. and the Republicans yeah. are having their conventions at the same time, yeah. where you can compare the numbers. Is that a loss, do you think? Um, I, I don't know if I'd say it's a loss, but it does make things, frankly, more complicated for the reporters who cover these, um, for the public to pay attention to them. It's, it's much easier to kind of not just know what's going on, but to cover what's going on when it's happening in both parties at the same time in the same state. Um, but this kind of decoupling, particularly South Carolina, it's been, it's been that way for a long time. The South Carolina Democrats, South Carolina Republicans have held their primaries on different days. Um, what's really interesting here, of course, is that Iowa is still going to be first for the Republicans. They're still going to hold their caucus. The Republican candidates, presumably there'll be some large number of them, will still be traipsing out to Iowa as the winter closes in, and I presume the media will be there as well. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about this particular time is if President Biden is running again, as he seems to be suggesting, um, the Democratic primary structure really doesn't matter in 2024. That is, I don't expect him to be challenged, and therefore there won't be any competitive primaries. So Democrats are going through this to set it all up, but it's really a precursor to 2028 rather than playing a big role for Democrats in 2024. So the Iowa caucuses, uh, the Republican caucuses in Iowa will be um, interesting, obviously. As you point yep. out, there's going to be a large field, and who knows? whether Donald Trump will still be the leader of the pack, right? But he can still show up there munching on corn and pigs in the blanket <laughs> and other I, yeah, unhealthy you know, food, I, right? <laughs> I mean, it seems that's I the one thing about the Iowa happen, caucuses yeah. is how many politicians eat so much cholesterol. <laughs> the Iowa State Fair, you can get pretty much anything you want fried and on a stick. And, of course, when you come to the fair as a politician – uh, you know, it's it's required that you fry some of these delicacies. It's also required that you cook some pork chops and that you, uh, you know, give a speech and um, you mingle with the public. Now, Donald Trump didn't actually do either of those things in any of those things in 2016. He came to the fair, but he did it on his own terms with his helicopter. And uh, it was it was quite different. But I expect to see virtually, if not all, of the Republican candidates 
kicking things off the Iowa State Fair in August next year. And at least on that side, it's going to be, I think, just as competitive and uh, interesting as Iowa caucuses honestly always are. So the full DNC hasn't voted on this. And my understanding is that there's a kind of policing mechanism. If, if, for example, the Iowa Democratic Party refused to go along with the DNC and to go ahead with their, it's not a, it's not a primary, it's a caucus, then th- that delegation won't get seated at the later convention, right? Is that the policing mechanism they have? Essentially, that's right. The mechanism is to take away your delegates if you violate the rules. Um, that mechanism's been in place in various ways in the past. And um, uh, from time to time, states tried to jump the prior rules and, and go ahead of Iowa or go somewhere in the you know, sequence that they weren't technically allowed. They were told they were losing delegates at one point in one of the cycles. It was half your delegates and Florida and Michigan uh, were both uh, penalized with that. But when it came time to actually hold the convention, their delegates were seated. And the reason was, of course, firstly, the nomination was settled. So it didn't really matter. And secondly, particularly when it came to Florida and Michigan, you know, discretion is the better part of valor, saying you're going to take away delegates on states that you'd like to win in the fall um, doesn't really seem like a very good strategy. So it's hard to know whether the mechanism can really work. Uh, I think, in again, in 2024, I don't think it's all that much of a crisis. And when it comes to the Iowa caucuses on the Democratic side, they could go back to holding the kind of caucus they used to hold, which was primarily about organizing the party, about building the party from the ground up, and about starting their delegate selection process. But as long as they don't actually select delegates until, let's say, the state convention, which is one of the ways they used to do that, um, they may, in fact, manage to both hold a caucus for party-building purposes and yet not violate the rules on selecting their delegates. It's a little arcane, but it's it's possible. But again, for 2024, you know, you're not going to have a whole bunch of Democratic candidates tracing out to South Carolina or Michigan or Georgia, New Hampshire, or anywhere else if President Biden's running for re-election. Right, and that's a big if, right? I mean, he said that he was going to discuss it with Jill over the Christmas holidays, whether he yeah. was going to run again. It was yeah. a family decision. He just turned 80 what, a week or so ago. Yeah. So that's a big if. But the assumption is the reason why the Democrats under Biden's direction have decided to start off their primaries in 2024 in South Carolina is that South Carolina was the deliverance for Biden in the last... Uh, presidential election, right, where he he came from behind and had a resounding yeah. victory. Absolutely. Yeah, after doing poorly in Iowa, not much better in New Hampshire, you know, South Carolina shifted everything. And there's no question that this is a reward for South Carolina, you know, for the South Carolina Democrats. You know, it is actually quite unusual for the president to get involved in this process. The process happens every four years. It's really unusual to see what Biden did in terms of very directly saying, this is what I want. 
And once he did that, of course, everything fell in line with what he wanted. But there's, there's no question that it is a, you know, it's a bit of a slap in the face to Iowa, and it is absolutely a reward to, to South Carolina. So in terms of Biden running again, if he doesn't decide to run, you know, we know that there's a huge bench of wannabes on the Republican right. side, yeah. led by DeSantis, and I don't need to name them all, but... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they won't be quiet, even though Trump is trying to intimidate them all into not running. But on the Democratic side, it's almost an empty bench, isn't it? Who, who, well, who, I mean, the challenge, except for the yeah. vice president, and she's not yeah. exactly popular. Although her job is not to be prominent, so who knows whether she could? Right, her, her, <laughs> exactly. Her job is not to stand out, and <laughs> it makes it tough for vice presidents, which is one of the reasons they almost never actually win. Um, Biden was an unusual circumstance, and there were still four years in between. Um, I, I think the this is actually a problem for the Democrats in the sense that we're 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 already getting late into the. <laughs> we're late into the beginning of the 2024 cycle. By now, if it were an open primary, if we didn't have a sitting president for the Democrats, you would have had many Democrats, again, already out there campaigning, already out there trying to get visible. Um, the question is who. The question is timing at this point, right? Not giving very much time to ramp up campaigns. But the the second question is the question you asked, which is who. And obviously, the vice president, Kamala Harris, would be expected to be a candidate. I would imagine that some of the, the candidates from last time around, um, particularly Pete Buttigieg, might um, might be out there. Uh, but it is hard to kind of put in your head really quickly a big list of potential uh, uh potential Democrat candidates, maybe the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, um, perhaps even the governor of, of Michigan, you know, the Whitmer just having gotten reelected. Um, but I don't think any of them are really prepared yet to to suddenly ramp up a campaign. Well, of course, because uh, they're not going to defy President Biden. But if in early January he says, I decided not to run again, which would make him a lame duck, I'm not sure how he right. could navigate that. Right. I imagine all these people would come out of the woodwork, including Governor Newsom, who just recently said yeah. that he's not doesn't have political ambitions, which he clearly <laughs> does have. Which is usually a signal that they do have political ambitions. Right, exactly. Um, I, I uh, you know, I assume and believe that President Biden would want to run again, and there are, there are good reasons to do so, including not being a lame duck at this point, but also just you know what he's trying to accomplish, what he'd like to do, and trying to build on certainly what he per perceives as the successes so far in his first term. But, you know, we don't know, right? This this is a, a job that takes a lot out of people. And as you noted, he's just turned 80. He would be, you know, uh, 82, basically, when he was inaugurated again. Um, I suspect that's, that's the real real decision point, and we'll just have to wait to hear what, what he decides to do. Well, David Redlosk, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed it very much.
Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with David Redlosk, who's a profession chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. He was previously a visiting professor at the University of Iowa, and he's the co-author of Why Iowa? How Caucuses and Sequential Elections Improved the Presidential Nominating Process, and his latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. We can take a brief station break. We're back with a leading expert on Russia from the National Security Council to try and understand why such a small man as Putin has had disproportionate impact on the world stage. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Weiss, Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees the research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff, as a member of the State Department's Policy Planning staff, and as a Policy Assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. His new book just out is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Weiss. Thanks so much to be here. It's really great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And just before we talk about the book, what do you make of Biden's recent comment when he was doing a, a press conference at the White House with French President Macron, where he was asked about the war in Ukraine and how to end it? And then he said he was interested he would be interested in talking with Putin if Putin was serious about ending this war, and to which Putin responded by suggesting that he'd be interested in ending the war, but the West has to accept his preconditions, which are that they have to accept all the territory that he's conquered, even though he's losing some of the territory that he's conquered. So not particularly encouraging. How does it strike you? Um I think the conversation really has to focus on what's happening on the ground and everything else is details at this point. Um, this is a horrible, brutal war. We're in the ninth month. Um, it was unprovoked. It was trumped up on the most ludicrous of grounds. Um, if you listen to what Putin and his senior members of the Kremlin have to say publicly to justify it. It's all on its face laughable and ludicrous. Um, and their goals are really maximalist. They want to wipe out Ukraine as a sovereign country. They're prepared to brutalize the innocent civilians of Ukraine. And they want regime change. Um, so, you know, it's there's no sign that any of that's changed. And we see every day that the tactics the Russian military is using are getting more and more brutal, um, especially as we go into winter. So conversations about ending the war, um, you know, I'm sure everyone would love to see the war over, but um, but that's the reality. The What the Russians are doing is is unconscionable. And if the U.S. president wants to say, hey, if the Russians were serious, they could get out of Ukraine, that would be the immediate, most obvious way to end this war. If they're not willing to do that, which they clearly aren't, um, we should 
you know, let this thing go for a little bit longer to, as to watch the Ukraine, you know, every day we sort of watch the Ukrainian people and their military push, try to push the Russians out. They've been remarkably successful. They've exceeded anybody's expectations. So, you know, that to me seems like the right approach. It's it's unsatisfying to those of us who look at the horribleness of the war every day, but the alternative would be worse. Um, and that's, that's really, I think, the, the quandary that you know, the Western leaders all find themselves in is if you were to say to the Russians, oh, let's have a peace process, let's have a ceasefire, let's let you basically regroup and rebuild and reconstitute your forces, I think you would be, you know, basically just forestalling round two of this. Um, and that's that's why I think, you know, I wouldn't really focus on the back and forth between Joe Biden um, and Vladimir Putin. I'd really focus on what's what's happening on the ground. And in terms of what's happening in Russia, it seems that Putin is moving more and more into the nationalist blood-curdling, bloodthirsty calls for nuclear weapons and all of this other stuff that the nationalists who are given traction on state media are calling for. And in terms of any any countervailing forces, uh, in, if you could use the word liberal side, um, I mean, most of the talented people have left the country. At least a lot of them have, particularly the young people. So is he likely just to move further and further into the embrace of the rabid nationalists? I don't quite see it that way. I think Vladimir Putin has been leading the charge um, and that this war is something that he conjured up out of no, you know, uh, you know, no, no obvious reason um, other than opportunism and his own reading of Russian history and, the, uh, you know, for the efforts he's tried to make to pretend that Ukraine's a made-up country and has no right to exist and that Russia has this right as an imperial power to dominate its neighbors. Um, to me, that's the, the, the beginning of this whole thing. And, and the noise that comes up on Russian television is, is completely, um, it's fascinating in a lurid kind of way, but it doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't have any political weight. The people who are on Russian television do not make the decisions. They don't set the parameters for what's going to be the government's decisions. Those are, you know, really separate and hermetically sealed from one another. And I think because we don't have a lot of good data about what's going on in the Kremlin, like it's a black box decision making arrangement and they deliberately try to shroud everything they're doing in secrecy we grasp onto the indicators we do have access to, and that's things like what's going on on Russian television. But I just would, I would really caution you and others from you treating that as an indicator of anything. Like Russia doesn't have a political life at the moment. Like there is no real pluralism. There are no political institutions. And these propaganda arms debating about like who can be the more over the top and who can say the more lurid, blood, you know, thirsty thing? Like it's it's gross, it's grotesque, but it's not an indicator of where where the debate is going, and let alone where Putin is going. So, Andrew Weiss, let's talk about your new book just out, "Accidental Tsar: The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin." It does seem that history tends to judge dictators like Hitler and Stalin and Putin in terms of the lands that they conquer and the millions of bodies that they pile up. But I'm reminded of a play by Bertolt Brecht, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Hui, that reduces Hitler down to a minor protection racketeer in the Chicago markets who's in charge of the cauliflower concession. And it seems to me that, to some extent, that's what your new book has done. It's not about 
this mythical, powerful guy that is supposed to be this genius, but it's about this ordinary guy, which leads you to the, ask the question, how did an ordinary guy like Hitler rise to the top, an ordinary guy like Stalin, who was likewise a, a nobody and a thug, what is it about history that repeats these patterns? You know, uh, it's a it's a hard question. Um, I tend to believe that individuals really matter, and their actions um, and their audacity drives a lot of what we call history. I'm not a historian myself, so I'm sure there's you know really sophisticated historians of Germany or or the Soviet Union who you know can tell you what accounts for how Stalin or Hitler, you know, became such dominant figures. In Putin's case, there's no doubt that he himself was quite cunning. He was underestimated. Um, He was very opportunistic. And he also showed that with great political will, you can force your way. And so pretty early on, I mean, this is part of what was fun about doing this book for me, was trying to think back to what we believed Putin was up to, for example, when I was in the White House in 1999 and 2000, and compare it now to where we ended up. And you know, did we misread things? Did we misunderstand? And I and a, the book is my effort in part to reckon with the mistakes that I felt I, w- I had made at that time in understanding what motivated Putin. It was you know not just making himself Russia's dictator. Um, it had to do with an, a reading, which is a, a understandable reading, which I think I didn't appreciate enough at the time, of what kind of government Russia's elites think is best suited for a country this vast um, and that's this unruly. And if you go back in Russian history, and this is one of the key themes of the book, Putin identified himself early on as, in Russian, the term is a gasudarstvenik, which means an advocate of a strong state. And if you think about basically the entire period of Russian history from the 16th century onward, the response of Russia's rulers has been to have a very centralized, very personalistic regime. And that was true in the imperial period. It was true in the Soviet period. It then wasn't true in the 1990s. Like that was the anomaly, the the Yeltsin era. And then Putin reasserted that previous historical pattern very aggressively from pretty much the earliest days of his presidency. And I think that was just the kind of thing that all of us who were swept up in the excitement of the collapse of the Soviet system and the fall of the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera, like didn't really appreciate that history would reassert itself so powerfully. So to focus on that era, that moment in 1999, Putin had been prime minister and he sort of came out of nowhere he helped apparently the Yeltsin family cover up some corruption. And then then he headed up, he became the first head of the FSB, the successor to the KGB, and then ran for president, conducted a honey trap operation against his opponent who was running against, who was the prosecutor general, who was filmed with a couple of young hookers. And then Putin blew up a bunch of apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing about up to 300,000 of his own citizens to get the Russian people aboard his offensive new war in Chechnya, where he talked about taking the Chechens to the outhouse and strangling them. So I've always wondered why, at that point, 
we didn't recognize who he was. If somebody that's capable of killing their own citizens in such a wanton way is hardly the kind of statesman who you can look into his eyes and see his soul. Well, I mean, you've, you've, you've definitely put together a pretty convincing indictment. And the team that I was part of in the Clinton administration at the end that was dealing with Putin had no illusions about the man and didn't believe for a second that Putin was a reformer. We were quite worried that his rise to power would potentially lead to the unraveling of the fragile democratic institutions and processes that Yeltsin had unleashed. So that was the worry at the beginning. Um, there was a real set of indications that Putin wasn't committed to, for example, protecting his neighbor's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And, you know, there's a scene in the book where uh, President Clinton is talking to him about the bullying stance that Putin had endorsed uh, towards Georgia um, in early 2001. So all of those patterns were were pretty clear to us. And that was part of why we wanted to keep the relationship with him sort of at arm's length, and there would be none of this kind of bonhomie and jocular tone that had been dominant during the Yeltsin era, where you had the two presidents, you know, really constantly together and acting like they were best friends. So the tone was was markedly different. The thing that shifted the U.S. relationship with Russia was not the um, the events that you're describing. I think arguably it was 9/11. And there's a great couple scenes in the book where I don't know if you'll remember this, Ian, but there was, you know, Putin was the first foreign leader to call the White House after the attacks. Um, he pledged uh, support for a joint response. He took a remarkable decision to let the United States open a series of bases in the countries of the former Soviet Union right next door to Afghanistan, which enhanced our ability to uh, defeat the Tal Taliban and go after al-Qaeda. So he did these things that were pretty dramatic, and he was rewarded for all that with lots of FaceTime with President George W. Bush. And he, you know, for one of the things that I had, you know, I think was really sort of, to me, crystallizes all this, is he was allowed to sit in on the CIA's daily briefing for, for President Bush and was given his own copy of the presidential daily briefing book. He autographed it and gave it back to the CIA briefers at the end of the briefing. It's unthinkable, obviously, in today's world that Putin would have any such relationship with the U.S. president. Um, but Putin had his own, and this this you know comes back to the opportunism that I mentioned earlier, which is a key theme throughout the book. Putin had his own reason for seeming like he was America's ally. He wanted us to get off his back about the unraveling of the democratic institutions like free media and the pressure on Russia's business tycoons. And he wanted a blank check to pursue the war in Chechnya and to kind of create equivalence between what he was doing in Chechnya with what the U.S. was doing to deal with transnational terrorism. But in terms of Putin's meteoric rise, who was backing him? Because it's always seemed to me that the KGB ran the country behind the scenes, particularly during the, the period of stagnation under Brezhnev, where Andropov was basically running the show. And, of course, he finally became the general secretary of the Communist Party, but by that time he was pretty frail and didn't last that long. Is there something there about the idea he went from the FSB to the, the presidency were they backing him? In other words, there was just as there was a brief period under Yeltsin of a 
sort of chaotic democracy. There was a brief period where the intelligence services were unmasked a little bit, but they've come back. So were they pushing him? Are they also a part of this story? You know, I think it's it's you're you're overstating it a little bit. The the KGB was not um, the dominant force that you're suggesting in the Soviet era. They were a state within a state, which is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. They were subject to control and oversight by the Communist Party and the Central Committee and the Politburo. Um, and a lot of the reading of Putin's rise has tended to emphasize how, you know, the KGB sort of uh, deep selected Putin, you know, decades in advance and then sort of, you know, used him to be the battering ram to to formally take over control of the state. And it was a little more complicated than that. Um, and I think that what happened, and this is part of what's so weird about writing a book like this is the influence of pop culture and how, you know, we sort of think of the KGB and these kind of, you know, uh, all the mystique and all the, the, you know, ways the Russians want us to think about it. Um, Putin himself, part of the reason he became a, uh, a KGB officer in the first place was he was caught up in all this, uh, pop culture stuff that he, uh, loved when he was a teenager in the 1960s. Um, and then this is the funny part, which I tell in the book, is the Yeltsin family, when they were looking and casting about for a successor to Boris Yeltsin because he was largely incapacitated because he was such a, a heavy drinker, um, they went around and did these focus groups. And when they did the focus groups asking average Russians, like, what kind of qualities do you want in a leader? The thing that the Russian respondents in these focus groups pointed to was we want this George Clooney type guy. We want this guy that we all watched on TV who was in a big, very popular miniseries in the 1970s, um, who's like Colonel Sturlitz. And Colonel Sturlitz was played by one of the grand leading men of the Soviet cinema, um, who was a wonderful character actor named Vyacheslav Tikhonov. So from the earliest days, they basically were casting around looking for somebody from the security services to play act the role of this 1970s miniseries hero. And they tried to mold Putin in the image of such a person. And Putin was not that guy. He was a you know, soft-spoken person, small stature, not glamorous, not noticeably handsome. Um, but they dressed it up as if he was, you know, the Russian version of George Clooney. And they put him in sailor suits and they had him ride around in jet fighters. And they had him play act the tough guy role. And it was, I think, remarkably successful. The Russian people all fell for it and bought it, um, particularly low information uh, Russian citizens. Um, But ultimately in the West, I think we over time, you know, saw this image all the time and sort of also took it at face value. And the book is a big part of kind of peeling back a lot of those deliberate you know, attempts on the Russian side to, you know, foster an image of Putin that's just not borne out. But at some point, you know, the reality does start to resemble the the facade. And I think we're very much living in that period of where the 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 kind of, you know, boss of bosses, macho, guy without a shirt on, all that stuff has infected Putin's sense of his own invulnerability. And that's led to lots of overreach and miscalculations in the Ukraine wars, you know, the most prominent example of that. Well, his tenure in the KGB was pretty undistinguished, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. In the backwater Dresden, and apparently 
his first chief of staff, Sergei Ivanov, who was a KGB general, made the mistake of reminding Putin that he was a general <laughs> and Putin was a lieutenant colonel. And he, he was yeah. fired, I take it. So I, I'd be interested in, in getting your take on the kind of Glavny Protivnik mindset of, of Putin. That how much is he shaped by this KGB notion of the main enemy, the United States? You know, I think it's complicated because, you know, Putin has gone through these different phases and his behavior has not been, I'm the hard edged, died in the wool opponent of the United States. And so, you know, using the 9 11 example, he did things. It's not just a question of rhetoric. He did open the door for an open ended U.S. military presence in his backyard, which is, you know, about as. Uh, you know, at least when you look at the justifications Russia's making for the war in Ukraine, that's what they claim they're worried about. But in the case of 9-11, he was willing to do things that flew in the face of all basic understanding of what Russia's foreign policy is grounded in. Um, he, at times, has wanted things out of the United States, and he's been willing to swallow and accept moves the United States has made in Republican and Democratic administrations. And basically just, you know, take NATO enlargement, he just rolled over for a couple of the previous rounds of NATO enlargement, including NATO's entry into the Baltic states, um, as if it was not a big deal. And it, to me, suggests that the, you know, there was nothing completely foreordained about where we ended up. What made the war in Ukraine, and this is a big part of the book as well, so to me, the most fateful decision Putin made, and it really started in 2014, is a fear of U.S.-led popular uprisings. And in Putin's mind, dating back to his time in the KGB, where he was in East Germany in 1989, when the wharf came down, all through the past 20 plus years, he has seen events where, like in Ukraine, where the people rise up and kick out an unpopular leader, or resist uh, attacks on their dignity, like in the Arab Spring. His reading of all this stuff is that it's a secret case, sort of CIA plot, and that the CIA, at the direction of the US deep state, organizes these kinds of uprisings, and we use American NGOs, or we use tech companies like Google, and we basically throw our weight around in the world through this tool. And the Russians call it a color revolution, and the Chinese have adopted in the wake of the way the Russians talk about this, similar phrasing and similar framing of the issue. Um, and you saw this even in the response to the protests recently across China in the last 10 days. They, you know, they talk about color revolutions all the time. So to me, that's really what's been driving a lot of the, the paranoia and the fear and drove this fateful decision in 2014 to start the war in Ukraine was a sense that the U.S. is doing this. The U.S. is, you know, pushing out a government that's friendly to Russia. And the next step after they succeed in Ukraine is they're coming for us. And so we've got to do things to throw the U.S. off balance and to make sure that nothing like this can happen inside Russia itself. Well, obviously, he was freaked out by the Euromaidan. But his his version of history, the idea that a bunch of Nazis attacked the palace where his guy Yanukovych was in there. By the way, Manafort was standing right beside him as Yanukovych was uh, ordering his palace guard to shoot the demonstrators. So is there any kind of link there, not a physical or a political link, but any kind of historical irony here that we ended up here with a bunch of 
American Nazis attacking our palace, our citadel of democracy, the Capitol, because there's been so much out there about, for the longest time, about Putin's ties to, and Russia's ties previous to Putin, back to Trump, who made his first visit to Moscow on July the 4th of 1987. I'm just curious to get a sense of how much Putin's active measures involved Trump. Yeah, I, the story that, and it's, I think it's really relevant right now, given the way the American political system is responding to uh, the meeting between former President Trump and Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, um, and the fact that, you know, you just see our, you know, particularly with the changes at Twitter, all the kind of dark corners of American political life are now really very visible and, you know, themes of anti-Semitism and intolerance towards LGBTQ people, all this stuff is just at us. And, and you know, it's like a, we've gone back into a, a you know, a, a, a typhoon or something. It's important to remember how this, some of this got started with the Russians. And again, all of these problems are largely our homegrown, you know, uh, just, you know, this is, this is not some external thing that the Russians created and uh, imposed on us, but the Russians certainly have amplified it or tried to exploit it as best they can. But what started, and this is, you know, it's a theme that runs throughout the book, is in 2011, 2012, where there were these unexpected street demonstrations in Moscow. And the chief beneficiaries of the Putin regime came out on the streets and said, we don't like rigged elections. We don't want you back in the Kremlin, Mr. Putin. We don't want to be subjects. We want to be citizens. And, you know, basically stop assaulting our dignity. And the immediate response that the Kremlin initiated to push back against this was to say, you're all American proxies. George Soros and the State Department are paying you to say these things. And anyone who supports the ideas that you're embracing is un-Russian. And so, for example, the Pussy Riot case became one of the ways the Kremlin very vividly said, look, these people defile the most, you know, important uh, of the Russian Orthodox cathedrals in Moscow. They're, you know, they're, they're not Russian. They're, 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 they're disgusting and they're hostile to our way of life. And at the time, Putin, you know, coming back to like the idea of artifice, he just put on this artificial cloak of I'm a moral conservative. I'm standing up against LGBTQ people. I, you know, I support the family. I support the church. And it was it was largely fraudulent what he was doing. But certain members of the American uh, moral conservative and GOP sort of movement, uh, you know, activist community like the Tea Party um, saw what Putin was doing and thought, huh, this is a guy who, you know, is kind of on our, our wavelength and he's a strong man and we like tough guys. And so people like Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, the evangelical uh, uh, church leader, you know, went to Moscow and embraced his anti-LGBT policies. Um, racist uh, former member of Congress, Steve King from Iowa, went to Moscow and embraced Putin. And over time, as the war in Ukraine got going, the Russians were really worried that the Western pressure campaign could be really bad for them. And so they sought as best they could to foment political tensions inside leading Western nations, the US, the UK, Germany, and France. And the main tool that they had at the time for doing this was to amplify the voices of populist and nationalist groups. And so, you know, Trump, Tea Party, uh, 
Marine Le Pen's National Front, the German uh, far right and far left, the Brexit advocates, all of these groups benefited or at least played footsie with the Russians during this period. And I don't think at any point the Russians, and the, the book really goes into this in a lot of detail, expected things would pay off so handsomely. Um, but, you know, it was like it was like the greatest intelligence coup in their history. I mean, they 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 way outperformed. Well, right. Well, the, what was it? The nine million, the nine million pounds investment through a British uh, insurance guy uh, that apparently came from the FSB was the biggest donation to Brexit. I mean, awfully cheap investment for the political paralysis of an important NATO member that's been paralyzed since Brexit and still is to this day. They still can't get out from under it. It's exactly. extraordinary. Yeah, but, and I mean, the, the comparison I draw in the book, and there's a funny little picture in the book, is to the people using box cutters to hijack planes on 9-11. I mean, these are very cost-effective tools. They're asymmetric in their impact. They're deniable. The Russians can say, oh, we didn't do any of this. It was just some, you know, troll factory who did it. You know, it wasn't us. Um, and you're letting us, you know, stew in our own juice. And that's the case very much today with watching the U.S. political system. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're unfortunately we're not out of the woods um, in terms of our own polarization. And the Russians benefit from that. But how much does Putin exploit these fissures? I mean, he probably, like everybody else, thought Hillary would win, even though he was clearly supporting Trump and we don't know the full story. The Mueller report, nobody's ever read it from as far as I can tell. But it, clearly he was out to help Trump. But had Hillary won, I'm sure Putin's plan B would be that Trump would go around the country for four years leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up to diminish her ability to govern. So you mentioned that Nick Fuentes, the fact that he was at this Thanksgiving dinner with Kanye West and Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and all the reporting about him being a, a Holocaust denier misses the fact that he's one of the biggest cheerleaders for Putin out there. And when he had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar on stage with him, he led a chant with the audience, Putin, 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 Putin. So there is a pro-Putin caucus on the right in the House. And of course, the Marjorie Taylor Greene's caucus, the vestiges of the Tea Party, seem to have an inordinate influence and maybe even uh, will decide who the speaker is in the next Congress. What kind of mischief can the pro-Putin caucus get up to? Because I'm sure there's a confluence of interest between uh, Putin uh, wanting to get the House to cut funds to uh, Ukraine, which in the state media, they were over the moon about the possibility of a red wave, the consequences of which would be that the first thing that McCarthy would do would be cut funds, cut U.S. funds to Ukraine. So is there a continuing active measures campaign on there? And why do we have this pro-Putin caucus or can't we expose it? So I hear you, Ian. And yes, some of these people say things that are really toxic. And I, you know, I lament that. But if you look at Fox News, which is you know the most popular television network in the U.S., and you look at its most popular hosts, they say these things all the time. And their megaphone is orders of magnitude bigger than Nick Fuentes or Marjorie Taylor Greene's megaphone. So having Tucker Carlson every night beating the drums about why Ukraine you know, isn't really a friend of the United States and he's rooting for Putin, and I mean, he says all these things, to me, that's much more consequential um, I don't 
quite understand, and I, I'm, I'm not pretending to be naive here, I honestly do not understand what's in it for Fox News uh, leading personalities to talk like this. Like it's it flies in the face of, you know, core tenets of what the Republican Party has stood for for decades. Um, and so is it just to embarrass Joe Biden and they would be you know willing to, you know, embrace anybody or is it something more uh, more complicated? It's it's mysterious to me. Um, and it's not just a question of what people on the fringes are saying. It does look like the you know leadership of the Republican Party and the the Congress is not ensnared by a lot of this talk. And you will you know as we will get a good test of this during the lame duck when the president's request for additional aid for Ukraine go forward. And it seems right now that the Republicans are likely to add to things, not take away. And when Kevin McCarthy, who you know the Republican uh, leader in the House started to talk about scaling back aid for Ukraine and he used these phrasings like no blank check, you know, he was pretty quickly shot down by uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, so there is something going on where the Republican Party isn't fully unified on these issues. There's a lot of differing views. Um, I'd be surprised if they are going to uh, cut and run um, from supporting Ukraine. Um, it's probably going to get harder to push some of this aid stuff through the Congress, but I, I kind of don't think it's going to fall apart. I, the last thing I'd say is I think the Russians are still not any great shakes at understanding U.S. politics, and they make these sort of flamboyant uh, gestures of like, oh, if only you know the Republicans win in the midterms, this other problem will be less intense for us, like U.S. military support for Ukraine. So they pin a lot of hopes on stuff that doesn't materialize. But the one thing that they are definitely pinning their hopes on, and I hope everyone is going to pay attention to, is they want Donald Trump back in the White House in 2025, because that would be the single biggest uh, course correction that they could bank on for a change in U.S. policy towards Ukraine. Well, just in closing, if Fox News is the major cheerleader or the, the most influential, useful idiot for the Russians... It's extraordinary because I, a friend of mine was high up in Murdoch's organization and he told me when Murdoch came back from meeting with Putin over a decade or so ago, maybe longer, but he said, what do you think of Putin? And Murdoch said, he's a bloody gangster. So, And Murdoch now seems to be backing uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. So does that mean that people like Tucker Carlson, uh, it's almost like Frankenstein's monster, they can't control it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on U.S. politics, so, you know, right. you can tell me more about Australian politics, you know, and Murdoch's <laughs> role. Um, I'm sure I could learn a lot about it. I assume that a lot of this is about money. Um, some of it's about ideology. But, I, you know, I, I'm really, I'm the Russian nerd. I, you know, I'm just sure. playing. Well, I'm glad that we spoke, though. You've filled us in. And, and by the way, the book is a graphic novel, and the work of Brian Box Brown, is so amazing with that kind of socialist realism style. It's brilliant. So I re highly recommend the book, and I thank you for joining us, uh, Andrew Weiss. No, thank you, Ian. It was great to be here. Really enjoyed myself. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Weiss, who's the Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as the Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff as a member of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff 
and as a policy assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of President Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. And his new book just out is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past Oh